This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. There were two reasons Mum and Dad chose this orphanage. Because it was the closest, and because of Mother Minka's goodness. When they were bringing me here, they told me how in all the years Mother Minka was a customer of their bookshop, back before things got difficult for Jewish booksellers, she never once criticised a single book. Mother Minka doesn't see my smile. She's too busy glaring at the St. Casimir's table. So I give Sister Elvira a grateful smile too. Sister Elvira doesn't notice either because she's too busy serving the last few kids and being sympathetic to a girl who's crying about the amount of ceiling plaster in her soup. You just heard Morris Gleitzman narrating his classic work once. While Morris Gleitzman has worked as a screenwriter and columnist, he's celebrated as a prolific author of hugely popular children's books and young adult fiction. In fact, he was the Australian Children's Laureate from 2018 to 2019. Often funny, sometimes serious. Morris's books never panders to young readers or listeners. He takes their concerns, their thinking seriously. And his writing shows that through a multitude of titles, including classics like Two Weeks with the Queen, Misery Guts, Worry Warts, Bumface, his Toad series, and, of course, the series of books beginning with Once, that follows Felix through seven books as he experiences the terror of the Holocaust and World War II as a Jewish child in Eastern Europe. The books take us inside the heart and soul of a boy living through the worst of times, yet they contain in parts a gentle humor and most powerfully hold out the possibility of hope and the redemptive power of stories. The recently published Always is the final book in the series, and we find Felix living in Australia, an 80-something-year-old retired doctor, returning to Eastern Europe in the company of 10-year-old Wasim, a European-African boy tormented by powerful fascist thugs. When I spoke with Morris Gleitzman, I wanted him to return to the beginning. What had motivated that first book once? How had Morris Gleitzman become acquainted with the fictional character of Felix? Well, it was one of those journeys that I think authors like and are a little scared of because we start off with one destination and we end up one book, even seven books later, at a very different place, but not minding it too much. So I started out thinking about friendship. I was interested in 
in friendship for all of its conventional benefits and values, but I was also interested to see just how friendship could contribute to a very difficult life. And I started to get a sense that I was interested in exploring a friendship between two young people at a time and in a place of great unfriendship. And so quickly my thoughts turned to war. I could have made a, made up a war, a generic war, but um, as soon as I realised that for the first time I was going to be writing um, a story set against war, it quickly occurred to me that this was an opportunity to explore a part of my family background a bit further. I had a I had one Jewish grandfather who was, as a young man, I like to think of him as a bit of a romantic wanderer because that's what he did. He didn't stay in Krakow um, in southwestern Poland to join his family company, as I think his parents would have liked. He went off travelling and never returned to Poland. This is in the first decade of the 20th century. He ended up in England, married, had kids, and stayed there the rest of his life. So during the 30s and 40s, when disastrous things were happening to the Jewish communities of Europe, including the extended family he'd left behind, parents, brothers, sisters, cousins, etc., that he left behind in Krakow, um, none of whom, as far as I've been able to find out, survived those terrible years. There he was, still alive, a fact that, of course, both my father, who was born in England in 1932, rather than the Poland that he might otherwise have been born in, and me too, I I wouldn't exist if if my grandfather hadn't had that yen to go and, and explore some, some further horizons. And, and I've always been grateful to him. I guess never having known him, my father, I think, was about um, seven when his father died. So I've invested my grandfather, I guess, with some qualities that I like to imagine he had. And certainly those are some of the qualities that I've tended to discover in my young characters, a, a preparedness to move beyond the comfortable boundaries of familiar life to have adventures, to discover things about oneself, but also to try and sort of push the possibilities of life a bit further. I know Once was originally supposed to be a standalone, but then it developed into a seven-book arc. And I'm curious about, as you were thinking about the final book, when did you begin to think about the end game, how this was going to conclude? Was it when you actually sat down to write always, or was it earlier? It was earlier. I'll do a quick recap. I'd certainly set out to write a single book about Felix and Zelda and their friendship in in the most unfriendly of times. But about halfway through the writing of Once, the first book in the series, the huge amount of research I'd done, because this was the first time I was writing a story at a different time, in a different place, to, to ones that I were fam- was familiar with. And I was also very aware that this also, for me, was the first time I'd written a story whose background really was the real-life experiences of, of huge numbers of people, many of whom did not survive those experiences. So I felt a great weight of responsibility to get it as right as one can when one wasn't there in that place at that time. And I also resolved that I would always be as frank as I could, particularly with my young readers. 
Before I started writing once, I did several years of reading. I was writing other books at the time. There were sometimes some quite incongruous mismatches between the stories I was writing and the research I was doing for this future project. And when I felt myself ready to write once, I'd, I'd met Felix and Zelda in my imagination, which is where I, I meet all my characters. I was about halfway through the first draft of Once when I realised that there were things I wanted to write about that my research had, had connected me to that I was just not going to be able to fit into this first story, this first book, without distorting it in, in ways that I feared would damage it. So then I decided there would be a second book then. And as I was planning and then writing that one, I knew that something would happen in Felix's life at the end of that book, which would be so life-defining for him. I started to find that the curiosity I had about how the rest of his life might go, I couldn't sort of push it back into the abstract. And so I, I've somewhat alarmed my publishers by saying that I was going to write a third book about Felix, they were delighted about that, but that he was going to be no longer a 10 or 11 year old boy, he was going to be an 80 year old man. That book now is told through the voice of Felix's young granddaughter, Zelda. And this was where I guess I made a sort of error because I thought that trilogy was going to be it. But within a year or so, I realised that Felix was a daily presence still in my imagination and he was letting me know that there was much more in his younger life that he needed me to write about. And that turned into three more books through his 12th, 13th and 14th years, after Soon and Maybe. And it was as I was writing, I think, Soon, that I thought, I've got to start thinking about an ending. Because even though I tried to write each book so that they, it would stand alone to a degree. It is obviously part of a chronology through the character Felix's life. And, of course, until we know the end, until we as readers have experienced, or listeners, have experienced the, the end of a story, we don't really know what it's about. We don't really know what its significance is to us. So going into that last book, what did you already know? I knew that I wanted to end... Felix's multi-book story by taking him back to where we first met him in Eastern Europe and he's certainly the sort of individual who despite having had so much taken from him in his life has also had a huge amount given to him and he's very much the sort of person who wants his final chapter to be a chance to give back in the way that so many adults through his own childhood contributed to his not just physical survival, but his emotional and moral survival as well. I knew he would have in a final book an adventure with a child, Wasim, who turns out to be around the age that Felix was when we first met him, and in very different life circumstances, being a young person living in Eastern Europe, but with an African father and a, um, a local mother, and um, and dealing with some of the, the difficulties, the the huge difficulties that, in a sense, Felix did, but very different context. But still, I think Felix quickly, when, when he meets Wasim, sees that Wasim is struggling to survive in a number of ways, in quite a similar fashion to, to how Felix did as a child. And so I think often stories, whether you really intend they will or not, end up coming full circle. And it seems to be a, 
a satisfying way for us to contemplate a life through literature. Well, it's also interesting because Wasim reminded me a great deal of young Felix in the way that he sort of demanded agency. He was buffeted by the times, but, you know, resisted every step of the way, but always big heartedly in the same way Felix did. And so what I think also closed to that circle was this sense that while Felix was an extraordinary human being, that extraordinariness actually can exist and does exist in other people too, that, that you can resist and you can still love. I'm very um, delighted that, that you've seen that in Wasim and, and in the story because, yes, I, I think there's a, an important balance when we're writing about characters who are behaving heroically, who are perhaps achieving or aspiring to a little more in, in situations of dire jeopardy than perhaps we secretly think we might be capable of. In fact, we want to as we go through the journey with such characters, come to feel that maybe we would be capable of this and that it's the sort of relationships that one has, if one's lucky, in one's life that help bring out our best potentials. And so particularly writing for young people and particularly at a time today when when kids of, of 8, 9, 10, 11 are looking at their world and it's that's the time of life when we really start to look beyond our family and and friendship groups and become more speculative about where our our journey will take us in the world without becoming a proselytizing bore i think it is possible for authors and stories to help model and inspire young readers through the characters in the stories and the problems that those characters are facing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think, I think our stories, and I think they always have, led us a little towards our best potentials and inspired us and, and reassured us that for all of us, there is a best not identical to everybody else's best, but there is a set of potentials that that are there for us to explore and struggle with sometimes. And obviously, if we're lucky, we have other people in our lives who inspire us and guide us and reassure us in a similar way. But just in case we don't, and 
at times when those other people perhaps aren't available to to curl up with a story that can that can light us up inside with the possibilities of our own life i think that makes those stories even more important even more precious and i decided a long time ago that i would try and make my small contribution to that process through the stories i write and i write stories with many different surfaces um lots of them at first glance are are pieces of of humorous um entertainment but i always try and put something into these stories that will that will leave young readers feeling better about themselves and the world and their place in it despite all the daunting difficulties than they did before they picked that book up wasim always stay hopeful that's my motto you're probably thinking he's such a dreamer that wasim what's he got to be hopeful about he's 10 years old and look at his life thanks but it's not so bad i've got a lot to be hopeful about so has uncle otto i can't wait to tell him what i've just discovered at the public library how it's going to make such a difference to our lives mine and uncle otto's no more iron weasels threatening to hurt him if he can't get the parts to fix their cars or if he tells anyone about their crimes or if he tries to stop them making monkey noises at me very soon uncle otto will be one of the most unthreatened people in europe one of the happiest as well most likely kate de camillo said the writer for young adults said when you write for young people the one thing you have to do is leave them with hope i absolutely agree yes yeah. unfortunately you only really have to look at any of the of the news media in any medium and you will almost immediately be receiving a stream of decontextualized examples of how dire things are and of the worst of human behaviors so if people of any age want to just be left feeling hopeless and defeated well there's plenty of opportunities there so stories have this unique opportunity to do something different i believe that stories often if not always should present the world in a real and truthful and untrivialized way but that's not to say that one can't take the inner states of characters and the way they see the world and particularly with young characters their hopes and aspirations and and creative imaginative thinking to actually present a story in a way that is not wholly naturalistic but we understand that it is still the world we know and live in it's just being brought to us through the perceptions and the inner life of a young character so i think hope is not an easy thing to achieve and there's a lot of platitudinous words spoken i guess by very well-meaning adults in situations where they're really kind of just trying to talk young people into a particular state of mind or or a particular set of behaviors but stories give us as readers the opportunity to go on a journey that is not a lecture it's a series of experiences and it's about some developing relationships that are developing partly in response to external problems and 
internal problems within characters. And if that story, or if as we read that story, we we end up in a place of hope, it's because even in the comfort of our reading chair or our bed, we've actually done the hard work. We've actually experienced some stuff. And if that leaves us feeling hopeful, then that's a real place we've come to for ourselves rather than being presented with a series of abstract ideas about resilience, determination and looking on the bright side. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say the thing with your books, and I, as, as I think is true with Kate's as well, is that hope is earned. Yes. It's yes. earned. And that's, that's what's important. Um, because you trust kids. You don't pander to them. You don't do it in your writing. And you certainly don't do it in your narration because you narrate many, most of your books. What made you actually get into the booth to narrate and present your own work? Well, I started out, my professional writing career started um, with screenwriting. And while, in fact, there's a lot to screenwriting beyond the words that characters speak, I developed the habit as I was writing the dialogue initially and then anything of really hearing those words being spoken aloud in my mind. So by the time I, I, I finish a novel with all of the drafts and all of the redrafting of every paragraph... I've reached a point where I know how that story should sound. Not necessarily the only possible way it could sound, but it's how it sounds to me. So when early in my experience with, with having my books turned into audio books, somebody suggested that I have a go at reading one myself, it felt quite natural. I'm not a, an actor, I'm not a performer in that way, but I found that I was able to do it on a technical level satisfactorily. But also because I was so familiar with the actual words and the, and the structure of each paragraph, I guess, it meant that I could really focus on the emotional currents running through the story, which is what I do when I'm writing as well. And again, I didn't have performance skills particularly to, to support that. So I just kind of went with the raw emotion that I knew that, that the characters were feeling the once series is is all first person, and in some ways that makes it slightly easier to keep that emotion running right through. But I, when I started thinking about the the audio aspects of my third person books, I realised that my third person author's voice is not a wholly adult voice, and so that also makes it easier for me to read with that emotional current and. Once I'd done it um, for the first time, it was such a satisfying experience. It usually happens just before the book itself is published. So for me, it's a wonderful last stage in my journey of, of creating that book, that, that story. Well, you certainly set a task for yourself in all ways because there are two narrators. We have 87-year-old Felix... And on alternate chapters, we have 10-year-old Wasim, and they share the duty of, of narrating, both from a first person. You pretty much chose not to age Felix in your voice. Yes, it, um, it was quite a journey reaching a version of Always that I was happy with. This has never happened to me before, but I wrote three different versions of that book because at first I thought it's essentially the end of Felix's journey. So 
I thought he should narrate the book. But that left me, even though obviously we hear, we heard Wasim's voice in that first version, I felt that I wanted Wasim to be closer to the central dynamic of the story in terms of the voice that tells it. So I wrote a second version of the book, essentially the same story, but we, we were told the story by Wasim's voice. And that actually worked better for me, but then I grieved the fact that here was the final episode in, in Felix's life story, and he was suddenly feeling not quite as central as I hoped. So I came to something whose technical demands scared me a bit at first, which is why I hadn't done it at first, but I realised that I just needed to share the point of view and share the voices between Felix and Wasim. When it came to the reading... I've never done voices and accents in a dramatically different way to each other in a story. This is partly because I don't have the technical skills to do that. But even if I did, I've always preferred audio narration that is more akin to the experience we have when we read the words off the page. While I have listened to some splendid examples of magnificent actors filling the oral landscape with utterly convincing and in some cases very useful accent differences because if you've got eight people in a bar and you don't want to have to do an attribution that Joe said, Gloria said um, on, on every line, it can be useful. But my books tend to be scenes between only two or three people and I I do in fact use a lot of those attributions because I think to beginning and less confident young readers it's fairer to give them all the signposting one can and so I work that into the overall rhythm and and structure of each passage that there will be lots of said Felix and whispered Wasim and so I tried to give a little bit of differentiation but it because at any point in the story it was either being narrated by Wasim or narrated by Felix but I think emotionally whoever's got you know the voice in a first person passage theirs is the dominant emotion and that really again for me it's it's the emotion that that leads me in the narrating booth almost all the time and so I didn't I didn't prescribe how Felix was going to sound how Wasim was going to sound both in their own um, chapters and in the chapters narrated by by the other. Felix, always in my heart. I say it louder than I normally would because of all the noise around us. People clattering past give us a look. Doesn't matter. If you can't tell your granddaughter how much you love her at an international airport departure gate, where can you say it? Zell's eyes are soft with emotion. Thank you, Felix, she says. I know that. I always have. Every day I'm over there in Syria, you'll be in my heart too. We squeeze hands. Expect random texts, says Zell, reminding you of that. Or if the mobile signal in those war zone hospitals is as bad as mum and dad say, telepathic messages. Zell grins. I do too. I'll be whooping with joy. I say, either way, even here in drizzly Melbourne. There's so much else I could say to her. I just went with the emotion. And I think that has given a little bit, just enough, I hope, of a separation between their voices. 
after 16 years, you're we're saying goodbye to Felix. You're not writing him anymore, and you're also not narrating him anymore. Was that an, an emotional narration for you? Was that difficult? It wasn't difficult. It was certainly emotional, and I guess it never feels like a finality. It never feels like a goodbye forever. Not because I'm secretly planning to sneak a, a book eight in at some stage. Although I must say, I have been thinking about Felix's now adult, young adult granddaughter, Zelda. So I'm I'm thinking about the possibility of writing a story in which Zelda, at age of around 20 or 21, would be the main character. But it wouldn't be part of the Felix series. That's probably more than I should even be saying at this stage. Because it's just <laughs> a vague, a vague mm. notion, really. But in terms of saying goodbye to Felix, well... I think any author listening to this will immediately understand that you never do really say goodbye. And the more satisfying and, and the more of a, of, of a successful process the writing of a character's book has been for you as the author, the less likely that they'll ever really leave your imagination and that all the experiences you've had with them, and obviously seven books gives you many more of those, they will stay with you as well. And and sometimes you just kind of go back to them in daydreams. And sometimes you hear them recounted by readers that you're in conversation with. And, and that keeps the character very much alive, even as you're marvelling at what each reader can, extra things they can bring to the life and to the experiences that are there on the page but have taken a journey through the imagination of each individual reader and all sorts of wonderful things happen there as well, which is fascinating and gratifying for an author. You wrote screenplays for hour-long films for the Children's Television Foundation, and you turned one of these into a book, The Other Facts of Life, which in fact opened the doors to you for writing children's literature. Yes. It was a few years later, I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., and I was sitting next to somebody who was a TV producer from England who surprised me by, on the first morning, putting a copy of The Other Facts of Life on the table in front of us and saying how much she'd enjoyed it. But she also mentioned that she'd shown it to a friend of hers from a very venerable publishing company called Blackie that had been going for about 180 years in London and that I would be hearing from the publisher from Blackie, as I did, and it was a letter asking me or inviting me to write an original children's book for them. And it was it just seemed like one of those opportunities that I never thought I'd have. And and I actually wrote a movie I didn't particularly want to write that that would earn me quite a lot of money, so I could then take the next three months off and write a first draft of a book called Two Weeks with the Queen. And when that was published, it actually had a a much stronger um, reception than, than I'd ever imagined. And I've had a first glimmer that maybe I could actually turn this into a job um, with, you know, an income. I'm just going to interrupt for one second, because two weeks with the Queen, I was so surprised that you wrote that so early in your career, because it deals with death, it deals with AIDS, it has important gay characters. That was a brave first book. And it really pushed boundaries. Yes, thank you. And and it did. 
but I wasn't aware of that while I was writing it, and I'm kind of grateful I wasn't really. I'd started out this first time that I, that I had the opportunity to write a book from scratch. You know, I'd started out planning a totally different story. I was working on an outline; it was going well, and I suddenly was gripped by a really strong feeling that this was not the book I should be writing. And I resisted it for an hour or so. I thought, what is going on? You know, I've never really been afflicted by writer's block or writer's anxiety to a to the degree that this was f- almost stopping me continued. And then by after lunch that day, I, th- I thought, I'm just going to go with this and see what, what's going on here. And I just started to get a sense of this story. And I scribbled an outline down in about two hours. And I knew, and it was the outline of Two Weeks with the Queen. And all the major elements of the story were just there. It felt as if it had been growing inside me for years without me knowing. And it didn't literally relate to anything in my own life. And the next day I started writing it. And I think I wrote the first draft in about four weeks. It just kind of poured out. I did some polishing. I didn't even do a full second draft when um, we showed it to a publisher. Boy, I thought, this is fantastic. I can write a book in about six weeks. I, t- I worked out how many weeks I planned to live and I divided that by six and I realised I was going to be writing thousands of books. It was fantastic. But of course it doesn't work that way and whatever the circumstances were of that story growing inside me, that's never happened in quite the same way again. I feel sick, said Luke. Try keeping the racket down a bit, said Dad, and you'll feel better. Probably a strain of heat-resistant bacteria in the Chrissy Pud, said Colin. Pity we haven't got a microscope in the family. I could have run some tests and spotted it. Colin saw Mum and Dad swap a little glance that he wasn't meant to see. They knew. They actually knew what he was busting for, and they'd still given him shoes. Boy, wait till he had time to write that anonymous letter to the Child Welfare Department. But I'm very grateful to have had that experience, and I'm grateful that the the sort of the rush of energy that it that it came out with stopped it, it I didn't do any self-editing, the sort of anxious, oh, what are people going to think of, you know, having a couple of gay guys in a in a book, you know, obviously designed for eight, nine, ten-year-olds, etc. So it wasn't really till after it was published and it was banned from schools in the UK for a few months, maybe the first year, for which I'm extremely grateful because it became a book that was widely read by young secondary students. And they in particular, if they get a whiff that a book has been you know, banned or that maybe there's a copy in the library, but it's not actually on the open shelf, that, that's a wonderful attention drawing device. And I've, you know, I've, I've had a warm um, feeling of gratitude towards Margaret Thatcher and her government ever, ever since. since. Not on every, every matter, but just this purely self-interested one. I wonder if you think back, is there a through line if you look at your work, the funny work, the serious work, is there a through line that runs through your work? I think it, I hope it reflects that young people, even quite young people, they have some big stuff going on inside of them. And certainly an error that we adults make from time to time, and some more than others, is to, because we live in a world where we ascribe so many values and assumptions to the the external appearance and the size of things. We make that mistake that because young people are physically smaller, that 
we sometimes assume or behave as if we're assuming that everything that's going on inside that young person is commensurately smaller. Now, we only have to stop and think about our own early years if we're lucky enough to still have any real connection with those years. And, and of course, we'd remember that as a four-year-old, our joy or our rage or our excited optimism could be big enough to fill the universe. But to an onlooker, there we were at a relatively few inches off the ground. And um, and that, to me, I guess, has been something that I guess my stories exemplify because even if I'm writing in a very humorous way and using some comic exaggeration, my stories are, are always about young characters facing the biggest problem in their life at, at that moment. And sometimes they're problems that we all immediately recognise as, as being huge and sometimes they're problems that perhaps adults might sort of think, oh, get over it, you know. Okay, so, you know, a friend has decided they don't want to be your friend anymore. Well, come on, there are lots of other friends around, etc. But the important thing is that at that moment, at that period in the life of a young character, it's huge. It is, it is as huge as anything could be. And a story can be about the most important things going on in a character's life. But I've always had a sense that even when stories are dealing with young characters with great pain inside them, there there is a way of fashioning that story that doesn't trivialise and doesn't turn away from that pain and its causes, but it still shows at least the potential of some alternative components that can help temper and can and that there can be a degree of rescue from unremitting internal pain and it's it's a difficult one because even as I was writing the once series I was working hard to allow Felix's innate and powerful sense of optimism and hope to to keep him mentally and emotionally safe and giving him the great privilege of being among the tiny, tiny majority who physically survived the Holocaust. I felt that there's a crucial difference between, of course, pretending that if you have a certain set of attributes that, you know, war's going to be not so bad and you'll survive, that, of course, is ridiculous. But it is still possible to evoke the notion that survival is at least possible even if in some circumstances it's relatively unlikely, that possibility to me is the absolute, the spark of energy, I guess, that generates so much of what stories seek to achieve and, and offer readers. And I think that is a good place to leave it. Morris, thank you. Thank you for giving me your time. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Well, a pleasure for me too, Joe, and talking to you and having a chance to really talk in some depth and length about obviously what for me is will always be one of the more important books for me personally that I've written. It's been a real joy and a great opportunity. That was author Morris Gleitzman. You can find reviews for his books, including Always, and many other books for children and young adults at audiophilemagazine.com. Don't forget to follow Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts, and then leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening. <laughs>